Sometimes what you think you need is not what you really need. Sometimes what you think you need is not what you really need. Have you ever had tech problems and had to call a tech helpline? May God have mercy on you if, it's a, if that's ever happened, right? Um, you know, I can recall in ages past having to call the, the tech helpline and you're like, I'm trying to install Windows 3.7.xz and this is that and I don't think that the code is... And they're like, sir, is your computer turned on? Right? Because sometimes what we think we need is not what we actually need. You know, sometimes we think we've got it figured out. We've got a bead on what the problem is. And sometimes that is not the case. Sometimes what we think we need is just really what we want. It's just what we want. You know, if, if you had a magic wand this morning and you could wave the magic wand and change something in your life, what would you change? Well, immediately I changed the balance of my checking account, right? That would help me. That's, that's what I need, right? If I had my wand, I would change my kids. Got to get an amen. Change those kids. Yeah, we're going to change that. That'll help. I changed my spouse. Don't agree too quickly. (laughs) They got problems. They're my problem, right? I changed the politicians. Well, we know that's good and right, and that needs to happen, you know, or whatever. So, you know, if you had a magic wand, you could change something. We change what we want. We change what we want because that's what we think we need. And whether we state it or not, and most often we don't, you know, you don't have a file on your phone that has, oh, all the things I want and desire in my life, right? But whether we state it or not, we have a running list of wants or of needs that we believe need to be met in order for us to be successful, to be prosperous, to just be happy. If I could just get the marriage fixed, if I could just sort out the family problem, if my job situation would change, if I just had a different house, if I just had a better car, a better job, if I could just lose the weight, if I could just get stronger, whatever it is, right? What do you think you need this morning? Now, these desires are not inherently wrong, but the question we want to ask is, do they address our fundamental needs? Do they address our fundamental needs? We're not saying that those aren't legitimate issues in our lives. But we just want to ask the question this morning, is what I think I need really what I need? We come in Matthew chapter 9 to this moment where Jesus, once again, asserts his authority. It's another story of Jesus healing. But as we walk through this text, we're going to see Jesus meet several needs. And we'll have to ask, which one is the greatest need? So we're picking it up here in Matthew 9, verse 1. Remember, last week he's gone to the other side of the lake. So we'll read verse 1 here. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Just to keep you geographically oriented, I'll show you this one uh, on the map. So let's show him on the map here. So Jesus, this is the the primary uh, area of Jewish population on the the shore of the Sea of Galilee during the first century. Remember, Jesus had come on on the boat with his disciples uh, he had calmed the storm right, in the middle of the lake and then had come down to the area of Gadara or Gadara. And there he interacted with the Gentile population. Remember, the two men came out of the, the area of the tombs and they were possessed uh, by demons. And Jesus uh, expelled the demons from them. They went into pigs. The pigs ran into the water. The, the town came back and said, Thanks, but no thanks. Get out of here. We don't want you here, Jesus. Please leave. And so Jesus, according to verse 1 here, got in a boat and went back over to the other side of the lake, back to what here is his hometown in the sense of his headquarters for his ministry, which is Capernaum, okay? He grew up in Nazareth, but remember, he moved his headquarters 
to Capernaum with the disciples. And so he comes back to Capernaum. And just then, of course, the needs continue to be presented to him. So we're in verse 2 of Matthew chapter 9. Just then, some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a stretcher. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. There's a lot going on in verse 2. Let's pay attention to it here, okay? First of all, you have some men, and they're bringing their friend who's paralyzed, right? He's lying on a stretcher. The Gospel of Mark gives us the added, very interesting detail that in order to get to Jesus, they had to lower the guy through the roof. But in this case, Matthew just cuts straight to the chase. He doesn't go into that. Nonetheless, these friends care about their friend, and they bring him to Jesus because he has this need, the need to be able to walk. And they love him, and they've heard that Jesus can heal. They believe that Jesus can heal. We don't have any reason to doubt that the paralytic believed that as well. He just needed help getting there. So here are these friends with the paralytic. They come to Jesus expecting healing, expecting this need to be met. Notice in verse 2 in the middle what Jesus observes in these men and the paralytic. He says, seeing their faith. Matthew tells us, seeing their faith. Seeing whose faith? Well, the faith of the paralytic and his friends. And when he sees their faith, he sees that they have come to him with the expectation that although no doctor could heal this problem, no doctor could meet this need, that Jesus could meet this need. Again, maybe they had witnessed some of the previous healings. Maybe they had just, they had just heard. But one way or another, they come to Jesus with faith, with this belief that Jesus can meet this need. So in verse 2, Jesus told the paralytic, Have courage, son. Now that's a really nice phrase because it, it's, a, it's a statement of intimate encouragement. Okay, The, the, the title son that he uses there, it's, it's a family term. And so Jesus here uses that term to reassure this man. He's like, listen, you're family. Like, I'm with you. And he says, you know, have courage. That's, that's an exhortation there. It's going to be okay. But maybe what Jesus is doing is he's offering a kind response to this man, even though he is about to not heal him. And watch the end of verse 2. Because what we think it should say is, have courage, son, you can walk, Right? Or have courage, son, get up, take up your mat, and go home, right? Have courage, son, you've done it. Like, way to go. You came to the right place. It's problem solved. I have healed you. Go. But Jesus says, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, it was a common belief in the first century that when people had a physical ailment, that there were sins, specific sins in their life that led to that specific ailment. And, of course, there's a correction in the New Testament about that thinking. You can't just draw a straight line. Oh, you sinned like this when you were a kid, and therefore that's why you have this affliction or whatever. That's not how it works. But, of course, all sickness is a function of sin. It's a result of Genesis 3 and the world being broken because of sin entering it. All that to say, Jesus here looks at the man, says, Have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, this tells us That from the perspective of Jesus, this man's greatest need was not to be able to walk again. His greatest need was forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning that our greatest need is the same. Our greatest need is forgiveness. It's not to have more money. It's not to get the kids in a better school. It's not to have a secure job. It's not to have the right politicians leading the country. It's not to have the, a better spouse or a better situation with my cars or whatever it might be. 
that you might think, oh, this is what I need to really help me advance and, and make progress and live at peace. Jesus says, your greatest need is forgiveness. The forgiveness of sins. It's easy to come to Jesus for fringe benefits while missing the point of why he came. And Jesus here is not content to let the crowds pursue him just for physical healing. He loves us. Have courage, son. He wants to bless this man. And as we'll see, he will indeed bless him practically in just a minute. But lest there be confusion about why he came, fundamentally, he did not just come to give people what they want. He came to address our greatest problem and to meet our greatest need. My friend Spurgeon said, this was laying the axe at the root of the man's evil nature. Like he came with the symptom of of being paralyzed, but Jesus says, listen, you got bigger problems than paralysis, buddy. Let me help you out here. Your sins are forgiven. He cuts to the fundamental issue in his life. And again, it's not that his sins were the cause of his paralysis, but it's just an acknowledgement that what is his greatest need? His greatest need was forgiveness. To put it bluntly this morning, we live in a day and age and in a culture that certainly does not believe our greatest need is forgiveness. No way, not even close. If you look around at our culture generally, right, we believe that our greatest problem is lack of health care or lack of financial resources or lack of education, right? You look at our society and what our society puts money towards and talks about as the solutions for our problems, right? Self-care is a big deal. We need more self-care. You might say that we need fewer liberals in, in office, right? Or fewer conservatives or just fewer people in general. I don't know. You know, I mean, we just need some change, right? That's what people are passionate about. That's what they think will really help to solve problems. But if our culture doesn't believe sin is our biggest problem, then that means... Many days, we will believe the same. We'll just get caught up in it. We, as we often say here, we breathe American air. And so we'll get caught up in it and we'll assume that my greatest problem is something other than the forgiveness of my sins. You could ask the question this morning, why have you come to Christ? And these men came to Jesus with faith that he could help them with a very practical problem. And praise God, he can. But sometimes when we come to Christ for help with X, Y, or Z, Jesus corrects us a little bit and says, have courage, son. There's something else going on that you need addressed. There's a bigger problem. Now, Jesus' claim to forgive sins did not go unnoticed. Watch verse 3 as the narrative continues. All right, so he says, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven. And in verse 3, Matthew tells us, at this, right, some of the scribes said to themselves, he's blaspheming. Now, they didn't say it out loud, but they were, they were there, right, standing in the house. They were around seeing what happened, witnessing what went on, and they heard it, and, and their facial expression maybe gave it away, or maybe not. According to the Gospel of Mark, the Holy Spirit enabled Jesus to miraculously know what these guys were thinking. But whether it was through body language, facial expression, or it was a miracle, Jesus' supernatural power, one way or another, he recognizes that these scribes accuse him of blaspheming. Note verse 4, perceiving their thoughts, Jesus said, why are you thinking evil things in your hearts? So they're sitting there, and he says, he says, have courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And 
the, the scribes who are Pharisees trained in the interpretation and application of the Old Testament, okay? These are like the Bible scholars uh, of the day. They're there and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. Did he just say what I think he just said? Because they knew and they were right that only God has the authority to forgive sins. The only way you could have your sins forgiven in the first century was to go up to the temple, have a sacrifice offered on your behalf, and then God would forgive your sins by virtue of the sacrificial system. That was how the sins were forgiven. But even when that happened, no, no priest declared your sins forgiven. It was only God who could say your sins were forgiven. And so for Jesus in Capernaum, out of Nowheresville, Galilee, right, to say to this guy, your sins are forgiven, uh-uh, nope, not having it. And so they thought inwardly, this guy is a blasphemer. He is claiming a right that only God has. And Jesus, again, whether it was supernatural or simply by virtue of observing their thoughts, I think it was more likely supernatural based on the gospel of Mark. Jesus says, why are you thinking these evil things in your hearts? What evil things? Questioning Jesus's authority to forgive sins questioning Jesus's identity as God in the flesh. Jesus says, listen, your line of thought here, you're headed in the wrong direction. I know what you're thinking, and you're headed the wrong direction. He confronts their rejection of his authority to forgive sins. But Jesus is not content just to confront these guys. He's like, okay, I'll prove it. Watch verse 5. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? This is a common uh, argument in, uh, in rabbinic uh, theological thinking. They argue from the lesser to the greater, okay? And so Jesus says, okay, which one's easier? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, get up and walk? Okay, and the answer is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because anybody can say that sentence. Oh, your sins are forgiven. It's a speech act. It's like when you say, I now pronounce you husband and wife, and there you are. Like you could say, oh, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You could run around saying that all day. That doesn't make it true, does it? Okay, but you can go around saying that all you want. But if you go around saying, get up and walk, get up and walk, get up and walk, there's people who are paralyzed and they don't get up and walk, you're going to be exposed as a fraud, right? So Jesus says it's easier to say, you know, your sins are forgiven than it is to say, get up and walk. Jesus acknowledges the challenge here, the unbelief in the hearts of these scribes. And as he does so, he, I think, reminds us all that unbelief blinds us to our need and God's provision. Here these guys were, and they were getting, they were getting firsthand experience of the purpose of the Incarnation. I mean, they're right there. And all they can think about is he's blaspheming. Their minds were totally closed off to the idea that possibly Jesus was the answer to all of their problems. That Jesus was the solution to their greatest problem, that he was indeed the Messiah, and indeed he was God in the flesh. Why? Because unbelief, right, sin, it blinds us to our need and God's provision. It's spiritual skepticism. And the fact is that the, the Pharisees, the scribes here, are a good example of it. But they're not the only place we find spiritual skepticism. We all struggle with this from time to time. Spiritual skepticism is, is simply hesitance to trust Jesus. It's when we're slow to trust him, when we question him rather than trust him. So here are some symptoms of spiritual skepticism. 
right? When, when we're questioning Jesus rather than submitting to him, that's a sign of spiritual skepticism. If your first response to his word is, well, yeah, but, right? Or hold on, does he really mean that, right? Then maybe you've got a problem there with spiritual skepticism. We resist confessing our sin and we want to make excuses. We're great at applying sermons to other people. You ever go through that phase in your life where you're like texting sermons to everybody else? Anybody ever text it back? Yeah, you should listen to this one too. You ever get that one back? Start doing that. People send you ones, just send it right back. Yeah, you start living it, I'll start living it, right? Yeah, but sometimes that's how it works. We're all about, you know, he's blaspheming, you're doing this, and you're doing that. We're not really ready to submit to the Lord ourselves. That's spiritual skepticism. We're hesitant to apply the word of God. Another symptom of spiritual skepticism is when we define spiritual maturity by external factors. These guys were totally missing the point of what was going on, and they were more worried about these external concerns. And we'll see that more broadly in the Gospel of Matthew with this category of opposition against Jesus, where you know they'll say spiritual people don't dress like that. Spiritual people listen to this kind of music. Spiritual people do this and don't do that, right? They define spirituality by simply what people do rather than by what they believe. Another symptom of spiritual skepticism is being more concerned with winning an argument than actually loving the Lord and loving people. And here these guys were arguing. In their minds, they were arguing. He's a blasphemer. He can't do that. And they had all these reasons why. You might ask the question this morning, am I more worried about rules and traditions than I am about faith and forgiveness? Am I more caught up in the religious nature of Christianity than the actual nature of Christianity? Than the Savior and trusting Him and seeing his work providing that greatest need that we have, the forgiveness of our sins. You could ask, is my first response to God's word criticism or faith-driven submission, faith-driven obedience? You see, these scribes weren't the only ones to struggle with spiritual skepticism. And honestly, there's a contrast here in the narrative. So Matthew has the paralytic who's brought by his friends who love this guy, who see that he has real need, and they've heard about Jesus, they have faith, and so they bring him to Jesus. How beautiful is that? Get to Jesus, right? What do we need to do? What's our goal? Let's get to Jesus, right? That's what we got to do. What's our strategy here? Get to Jesus. And then these other guys are there, and they're experiencing Jesus and his ministry, and they're thinking, this guy is a fraud. This guy is claiming too much authority. And they're blinded to who he really was. If you're going to be like one of those two groups, I would encourage you to be the friends, right? Be the person whose strategy is get to Jesus, right? I I have faith that Jesus is who he has said he is. And so I'm going to Christ. That will inherently help you in your battle against unbelief and spiritual skepticism in your heart. I would also just encourage you that... It's important that we acknowledge the struggle. None of us are immune to it. So sometimes we think, well, I can't really acknowledge where I'm struggling, where I'm doubting the Lord, because then other people will think less of me. Well, that may or may not be true, but the fact is we need to help each other in this. We need to bear one another's burdens and walk together. And so, well, not everybody needs to know your struggles. Some of us need to know your struggles so that we can walk together. And again, we can pursue the Lord together. You need friends that can help you get to Jesus when you're struggling. So it's okay to acknowledge that, hey, I'm struggling with this, and I'm struggling to get to Christ or to look to Christ. 
Now, these scribes, so different than the friends, right? These scribes, they were absolutely sure Jesus was blaspheming. Like, they didn't have, they, it wasn't even a question for them. They knew he was. They were wrong, like 100% wrong. Watch what happens in verse 6. So Jesus sets it up, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. Okay, we already said oh, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Watch verse 6. Here's your big payoff. Jesus says to them, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. Oh, what a moment. I mean, you know, it's one of those moments where you're like, okay, if I could time travel in the Bible, like that's one of those ones maybe I'd like to be there. Right? Just to have seen it go down. But Jesus says, here's the deal, guys. So that you will know, he set up the, which is, you know, easier, harder. He says, but so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That statement is so loaded with theology. Jesus is taking these guys to school right in front of him, okay? That's what he's doing. When he calls himself the Son of Man, he's using a title for the Messiah from Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel's vision in chapter 7, he sees this glorious vision of the Son of Man, who in contrast to the beast, the the world in rebellion against God, the Son of Man comes as a human and exercises the authority of God on earth. And he's the judge of the earth. He sits on the throne with the Father. That's the vision, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And so here, Jesus claims that title for himself. He says, I'm the Messiah from Daniel 7, which means I have God's authority which means he is God, right? That's the argument. And so he says, so to prove to you that the Son of Man, a.k.a. me, right, has authority on earth to forgive sins, to prove to you that I'm the real deal, I will do the harder thing in your mind. And so it's it's beautiful the way he does it. So he says that that so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and then he turns to the paralytic. So he's talking to the scribes. Okay, no offense over here, but we'll put the scribes over there, right? So he's talking to the scribes. Here's the paralytic, and then he's talking, so you guys will know, and then he turns to the paralytic, and it's just so great, right? The drama's huge. Then he told the paralytic, get up, take your stretcher, and go home. See, I told you, take courage. I told you, son, I was going to get to you. It's okay, I got you. He says, get up, get out of here, take your mat, go, right? To prove the point, to do the the thing that looked harder, that seemed harder to them. And so verse 7, so he got up and went home. I like how Matthew's just like, you know, yeah, yeah, so he did it. He did it. The The paralyzed guy gets up, rolls up the mat that they carried him in on, tucks it in, he's like, peace out, I'm gone. And he goes. And now we don't have record. We don't have record of whether or not he ran he skipped. I, I don't know. But he's out. He's gone. He goes home. Life transformed. Greatest need met. Sins are forgiven. Subordinate need met. Now he can walk, right? And so there he goes. And this guy's life is transformed. And Jesus does this in that order, not only to prove that our greatest need is forgiveness, but also to prove that he's the one that has authority to meet that greatest need. Okay, I'll do what you think is harder. Now watch the response of the crowd, verse 8. So it says, when the crowd saw this, when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Now this is interesting. First of all, the crowds are blown away. It's not necessarily clear that this is faith just yet. But at the same time, they gave glory to God. So they recognize God is in this. 
So this doesn't just happen like God's done something here and may God be glorified. As we're going to see in Matthew, there's an increasing concern about the crowd just being, wow, you know, interested in what Jesus is doing and kind of blown away, but not actually trusting in Christ. So that we're going to see that little subplot continue in the gospel. But at this point, they give glory to God. They worship God because of the healing that's happened. And they're, they're still a little confused, though, because Matthew says they gave glory to God who had given such authority to men. Specifically there, he doesn't mean that, oh, God gave healing authority to people in general, but to this particular man, Jesus, that they, had, that they were interacting with. They didn't understand fully yet that Jesus is God in the flesh, even though Jesus is pushing them that direction by virtue of this very moment where he declares the man's sins forgiven, right? So he's pushing them to consider that he is indeed God and he has that authority, but they're still not there yet. So they're just blown away. They're like, man, if anybody can do this, this is amazing, you know, may God get the glory. Again, they're in process. They're not quite there just yet. In that moment, what has Jesus done? Well, he's proven something that we all have to understand, and it's this, that he alone has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. Which brings us back to the easier, harder thing. Jesus said, which is easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. Of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But which is actually easier? It turns out that healing a paralytic is actually easier than forgiving his sins. And of course, because the crowd didn't perceive that and the scribes didn't perceive that, Jesus said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll show you this. I'll prove to you that I have authority to forgive sins. But as Jesus does this and demonstrates his authority, he causes us to ask that question, well, hold on a second. Why is it that he has that authority to forgive sins? Because he's the Messiah, because he's the Son of Man, because he is God in the flesh. All those are correct answers. But to really, to really get to the bottom of this issue of forgiveness of sins, we have to keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew. And what happens in the rest of the Gospel? Well, Jesus continues to teach and to heal He continues to be opposed by religious leaders. He continues to confront the blindness of his own generation who reject him. And then, of course, Jesus is finally rejected, and he's sent to his execution. And as Jesus goes to the cross, what is he doing? He's not simply suffering at the hands of a wicked generation. He's not just receiving punishment from his leaders of his culture at the time for crimes of blasphemy, incidentally, that they accused him of, what is he doing? He goes to the cross bearing sins. And none of them were his. He goes to the the cross bearing the sins of this paralytic and his friends. He goes to the cross bearing the sins of his disciples. He goes to the cross bearing the sins of you and of me. And Jesus can declare your sins forgiven because he died in your place to satisfy the wrath of God for those sins. And crucially, he rose from the dead, confirming that indeed he is the Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh for us, right? Confirming that, yes, those sins have been paid for, that sin and death have been defeated, You see, you have to get the whole picture to understand why Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Forgiving sins is the hardest thing. 
It's the fundamental need of all of creation since Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus says, not only do I have the authority to declare your sins forgiven, I am the means by which your sins are forgiven. I will suffer for you. So take courage, son or daughter. Take courage. Because not only do I know what your greatest need is, I will meet it. Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins which means there is no other means of forgiveness. You see, Jesus has demonstrated his authority over nature in the calming of the storm. He's demonstrated his authority over sickness by healing people. He's demonstrated his authority over evil last week by dealing with those demons. But all that leads up to here, chapter 9, where Jesus introduces this idea, this important concept for his followers, which is he doesn't just have authority in general. He has authority to forgive sins, which that's the key aspect of his ministry, the primary reason he came. Of course, we talk often about how when Jesus healed these people, they went on, they lived their lives, and later they got sick with something else. They would succumb to that illness and die. Does that mean Jesus failed? No. All these healings are just a sneak preview of his greater work. And yes, in eternity, we will enjoy an existence without sickness, right? Without any paralytics, without any problems. And we look forward to those days. But that is facilitated because sin has been removed from the equation. You see, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Why? Because he is the one who went to the cross for us. So there's no other way that we can find forgiveness, which is so important to understand. We can't be forgiven by acts of obedience. This is crucial because this is basically every religion in the world kind of has this as their default setting. Is that in order to make life right, whether whatever God you believe in or or gods or whatever, like in order to make it right, you have to do certain things. And if you do those certain things, then you will receive favor. That's how it works. And Jesus says that is not how it works. He says, you're not forgiven by virtue of your performance. Again, the strategy here is get to Jesus. Jesus says, he says, have courage, son. Your sins are forgiven because he has the authority to do that. And only he has authority to do that. So you're not forgiven by acts of obedience. You know, be careful that in your life, you don't view your forgiveness as a function of your obedience. Because that robs God of his glory and it robs you of grace. Because if that's really true, that you're forgiven by virtue of your performance, it's not grace, you've earned it. But that's precisely what we can't do. That's why we sing so much about God's grace and his kindness and the goodness of Jesus. Why? Because we can't earn it. We have to have help. So we're not forgiven by means of acts of obedience. We're not forgiven by virtue of family history. And some of us are like, well, yeah, no kidding. You should see my family, Pastor Ryan. Like, you should, you know, yeah, there it is, right? But sometimes, even though some of us may be blessed to come from families with generations of faith, and we praise God for that, right? Sometimes we can mistakenly fall into this assumption, well, because my great-grandfather was a, was a Christian and my grandmother was a Christian and my mom and dad are Christians, that that's, I'm good with God. I'm in the family, But only Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and the basis of that forgiveness is his work on the cross on our behalf. See, Jesus is preparing his disciples to understand what's going to be happening later when he he teaches them here that he alone has authority to forgive sins. We praise God for Christian families, but they're not the basis 
of forgiveness of sins. And if you're a younger person in a Christian family this morning, you can thank God for your family. But dear one, you've got to come to Jesus on your own. You've got to come to Christ and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. And praise God, he is good. And Jesus is a kind savior. And he is ready and willing to forgive you of your sins based on what he has done. But he will not forgive you based on your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith. We're not forgiven by virtue of church affiliation. Now, that's shocking, and I know you're somewhat surprised to hear that coming from me, but there you go. Church membership does not guarantee you forgiveness in the sight of God. People can be deceived about the state of your soul, and you can be a member of a church, or you can attend a church for a really long time and be associated with that church, or go to particular conferences, or be a member of a particular denomination, but none of that has the authority or basis of providing you with the forgiveness of sins. And so we can praise God for good churches. I praise God for this church. It's a blessing. We praise God for the advancement of the gospel throughout the ages and the way he has used his word through different churches and denominations to advance his cause. Absolutely. But let us never think that association with a church is the means by which we're forgiven of our sins. I can't say to you, your sins are forgiven. I can say to you, by faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. That I don't have the authority to forgive your sins. Jesus does, because he went to the cross for you. We are not forgiven by virtue of deeds done by others on our behalf. This is kind of a subset of where uh, religions can really get, get it wrong. Where, okay, maybe the idea is, I understand that I can't do it, but if I show up to church, then maybe a, a pastor can like do something to me or for me. Every once in a while, I get that call, you know, Pastor Ryan, you got the red bat phone to heaven. Can you get on that thing and, you know, get, you know, get, it, get this taken care of? And I do have a red phone in my office, but it's not for that purpose. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I don't have a red phone. Uh, it's black. And, it, you know, it is what it is. It, just, it doesn't even, it's just a normal phone. So what good am I? Well, hopefully I can help you get to Jesus. But, but there is no act that I can do on your behalf that will then accomplish the forgiveness of your sins. You have to go to Christ. You have to trust Christ. And so you can't bank on someone else to do that work for you, specifically a religious official, right? And especially in the Roman Catholic system, that's the default setting. The church does this to you. They do it for you. And I think there's a a real caution here. When we read the Word of God, it clarifies that you've got to go to Jesus. And yes, He has the authority to forgive sins. And He'll do it. The church serves you by delivering that message to you, not by somehow having that authority in and of ourselves. There's no other means of forgiveness. We could go on, acts of contrition, sacrifice of time or money, etc. But at the end of the day, Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins. And listen, brothers and sisters, this is how much he loves us. That he did it. That he went to the cross for us. And when Jesus says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to heal this guy, okay? But as I do it, I want everybody to know I'm making a bigger point that this guy's paralysis is not his biggest problem. His biggest problem is the forgiveness of sins, and I want you all to know that I have that authority. So get up and walk. And the guy goes. And as he does so, the crowd's blown away. And they had to think about, what does this mean? That Jesus has claimed the authority to forgive sins. The scribes were half right. Only God can do that. And Jesus is like, yeah, only God can do that. And here I am. And when he says to that paralytic, take courage, son, 
He's saying to him, I'm in your corner. I care for you more than you can know. And that guy didn't know what it was going to cost for his sins to be forgiven. He didn't know that Jesus was going to go to the cross, but I can tell you that Jesus did. And he knew, and he went. This is how much he loves us. So we have to be, we have to be just open and honest here about the ridiculous love of Christ for us. The unparalleled love of Christ for us. The immeasurable love of Christ for us. If you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, the best thing I can tell you is not only that He has authority to forgive sins, but that because He loves you, He's made it possible. And He does. So why should you turn to Christ? Why should you put your faith in Jesus? Yes, because you have lots of needs, absolutely. But your greatest need is the one that Jesus says, I have met. He says, your sins are forgiven. For the rest of us, we have to consider the dangers that we have of pretending like we don't have this need. We can have shame over our sin and hide it. We can doubt the Lord and hesitate to go to Him. We can be overconfident in our performance. But in all of those dangers, what we're saying is we don't really have that need. I don't need my sins forgiven. We can be honest about our doubt. We can confess our sin and see Jesus remove our shame. We can humble ourselves, acknowledge our pride, and recognize that what we have in Christ is so much better than anything we could ever do for ourselves. As we do so, God gets the glory and we get the benefit. Now, what about all those other needs? Well, as we'll see, when we trust in Christ, those other needs, they tend to go to the back burner. And maybe we realize, you know what? Although that's something good to want, maybe I don't need it as much as I thought I needed it. Maybe what I need most is to get to Jesus. Sometimes it's sad the things that will let prevent us get to Jesus, the things that will let get in the way, the distractions that will let discourage us or derail us from focusing on the Lord, even on a daily basis. I got to tell you a story about two friends I have in Sudan. Uh, This guy, Walter and Ronald. Have I told you about Walter and Ronald before? Those aren't their real names. Their names are changed to protect them. Um, You know, Sudan suffered uh, suffered a civil war. It continues to be in warfare to this day in that country because of this conflict between people groups. And Walter... He's like, I got to get out of here. I need to get an education. The country's at war. And so he's like, I'm out, gone. So he, he flees Sudan, right? His greatest need in his mind was to get educated. That was, his, that was what he needed, to get educated. Along the way, Walter, so he, he gets out of Sudan, and then he hears about this Bible translation project that's in his native tongue, which was kind of rare, and it was kind of a big deal. And he, his interest was piqued. He's like, wow, the Bible, in my tribal language, that's interesting. He's like, I'd really like to, to hear that. And he was curious about Jesus. I think at that point he would say, I had like this inclination that I needed Jesus, perhaps. So he's like, I need to be a part of that. Well, the problem was that this translation project was happening in Uganda. And because of the displacement that had happened with the war, he was very, very, very far away from Uganda, like over a thousand miles. He would have had to take a much uh, longer route to get there through Kenya. It's a long story. All that to say, here he is. He has no money, okay, because of the war. He has no resources. He doesn't have, like, you know, hiking boots. He doesn't have a backpack. He certainly doesn't have a car or anything like that. And he's like, okay, well, there it is, you know. And he, he did, in that situation, what I think anybody would do in that situation. 
He walked. A thousand miles. Why not? His buddy Ronald says, I'll go with you. And so these two guys, with nothing, straight up walked a thousand miles. Now, they didn't walk the whole thousand miles, okay? They walked most of it. And what happened as they walked? Well, God provided for them. He met their needs. And after, I kid you not, this is a true story, eight months, eight months, they arrived in Uganda. What did they find? Well, they found the Bible Translation Project. And there, Walter and Ronald read the Bible in their tribal language. Maybe they read Matthew chapter 9. I don't know. But I do know that Walter trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And he was convinced that his biggest problem wasn't lack of education. His biggest problem was his sin, that he needed forgiveness. And you know what? Praise God that he had a friend that was willing to help him get to Jesus. When I think about that story, I'm so encouraged. It reminds me of the goodness of God, again, of Jesus alone having authority to forgive sins. But it also challenges me to think about what am I allowing to get in the way in my life of my pursuit of the Lord? What am I allowing to prevent me from recognizing my greatest need and growing spiritually? What am I allowing to distract me? The question is, do I really believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins? Do I believe that's my greatest need? And do I love him for meeting it? Brothers and sisters, let's get to Jesus. Would you pray with me? And we'll ask him to help us do just that. Lord, we thank you for Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. We thank you for this, Lord, this reminder. And it's an important moment because here, Lord, you teach us that even paralysis is not our greatest problem. And Lord, we know we face many physical challenges Indeed, many in our body, Lord, are suffering and hurting physically this very week. Lord, we think about financial challenges that we face, problems that we have with our finances, Lord, problems that we have in our families, emotional struggles, Lord, hurts that are are so deep, and yet we recognize that fundamentally our greatest need is the need for forgiveness. And Lord, we thank you that you say to us, take courage, son or daughter. Take courage. That for a little while we will endure the hardship of living in a broken world. But Lord, we thank you for your proclamation that you have the authority to forgive sins. Because you are the Son of Man, because you are, Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh for us. And Lord, because you love us. Lord, we thank you for the message of the Gospel of Matthew that, that your kingdom has come by virtue of not only of the incarnation, but by virtue of your death and resurrection on our behalf. And Lord, we thank you that you are willing to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, help us to not doubt you, to not let pride and arrogance blind us to our need and blind us to your provision. Lord, help us to be like this paralytic and his friends, to be energized to get to you and to stick with you and to walk by faith in you each day. And Lord, as we do so, may we grow in confidence, not only that our greatest need is met, that we are forgiven, but Lord, may we grow in confidence in walking in a way that brings you honor and glory. Lord, we thank you for this this narrative in Matthew 9 and what an encouragement is to us, a reminder of your goodness and the fact that you alone have the authority to forgive sins. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen.